I used to absolutely hate you. There was a time, right? Like, you know, I hated DHS online, right? I, I hated your guts, all of it. You are a opinionated person. I mean, that's fair. It's, it's fair to have disagreements. What matters to us more than anything else in this business is independence. We want to be able to do whatever the hell we want Whenever the hell we want, the only kind of quote-unquote investment we ever took was a secondary round from Jeff Bezos. It was just enough to give us the financial cojones to just say, fuck all the money. If you want the best odds of getting a million dollars, it's not a VC ticket. It just isn't. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very, very special episode of the Arthi and Sriram show um, because we have a very, very special guest. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not, you know, I often say this person needs no introduction, um, but this person not only doesn't need an introduction, but I just know him by, like everyone else by his initials. So it is a <laughs> pleasure to have the one and only DHH. Um, and for those of you, you know, who don't know him, that is, this is going to do no, you know, sort of like justice to his body of work, but I'll deal with some of the highlights, you know, uh, David Hemmer Hansen, uh, creator of Ruby on Rails. Founder of 37, uh, well, Basecamp, uh, you know, 37 Signals, best-selling writer, uh, Le Mans uh, winner. I think you've been racing for 10 years. We're going to uh, get into all that. Uh, you know, uh, probably one of the most prolific online writers, uh, you know, for many, many, many years, over a decade, which we'll also get into. Um, and I, honestly, in my view, one of the most interesting people in tech. But David, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This is uh, great to be here. Okay, so you're a bit different because usually when people come on the show, right, I will have the kind of the spiel about like, I've been a big fan of you forever, blah, 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 right? <laughs> but you're different, right? Because you're the first guest we had where I'll start off by saying, I used to absolutely hate you, right? There was a time, right? Like, you know, I hated DHS online, right? I, I hated your guts, all of it, right? Uh, and uh, it, it, it and I'll say, you know, just for the record, you know, uh, if it's not obvious, like I'm one of these maybe biggest fans now, and there's a lot, you know, there's kind of an interesting uh, journey in that to unpack. But um, so to start off with, and, and I was trying to think back as like why I disliked you, right? But I think, you know, it is probably fair to say you are a opinionated person online, okay? Uh, and you always been. And I'm just kind of curious, like, where does that come from? Like, is that like a Danish thing? Like, you know, where does it come from? And then I'm going to get into some of the stuff which I really used to disagree with you on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're kind to say opinionated person. A lot of people would say opinionated bastard. But um, <laughs> I don't think it's a particularly Danish thing because I moved to the United States in 2005, spent 15 years there, then moved back to Denmark for three years over the pandemic and really got reacquainted with the Danish spirit. And the Danish spirit is usually very mild-mannered. Um, I'm not going to say bland, but it's um, restrained. So I don't know where this um, DNA mutation came in along the way in the lineage, mm -hmm. but somehow it got inserted into me. And uh, yeah, I've always cared deeply about the things that I care about. Let's put it like that. I don't care about everything. Yeah. I do care about perhaps too many things. But the things I really get into, I get usually quite passionate into them. Although maybe we'll talk about that later. I have actually, I mean... I was going to say backtrack, and I think actually that is fair. I have cared deeply about things from a certain angle, and then as time passes on, 
I realized, you know what, there's other vantage points you can look about uh, at that issue, mm-hmm. or that the vantage point I used to have was just flat out wrong. So I think this is one of the joyous things of having been online uh, for, what is that going to be, 25 years? Jeez, almost 30 years now. I yeah. was working with the internet all the way back from 1995, and before that was involved with BBSs and all of that stuff. So I just have a huge body of work from being online for that long that it's hilarious that I can go back and look at something I wrote in 2004, and sometimes I'll go, damn it, I wish I could still write like that. I used to be far more succinct in 2004. I would write like three, four paragraph, boom, that's a post out the door. Oh, now I'm a little more long-winded. But other times I go back to 2004 and I go like, what is this? Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this is just one of the joys of being online long enough and living long enough to some extent that you get to yeah. see some of your predictions or passions pan out, that they're still true, yeah. they're still apt. And then others, eh, you know what, that one didn't age as well. Yeah, well, I'm going to, you know, but by the way, unlike you, I've written thousands of tweets and they've all been correct is what I'll say, right? Like, uh, uh, no, but I was going to say, you know, I- I'll get to why I've become such a big fan of yours uh, uh, for over the years. Wait, but wait, talk about what, what you disagreed with. Yes, yes, I was going to bring this up, okay? Yes. So, and because somebody else will bring it up because the post I used to really hate you for is, I'm going to go back, uh, it's from September 23rd, 2010, and you write, Facebook is not worth $33 billion. <laughs> Guess what, David? You were right because as of speaking right now, Facebook meta is worth, let us see, uh, 979.37 billion. So, well, I guess you were right. Score one for me, not 33 billion. <laughs> Correct. If you didn't read any of the other paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, you know I, I think, you know, seriously, you know, I was thinking about for, for a while, I actually did hold this against you, which, but I think it's just so dumb of me. But I think there's a few things, right? One is that as I've gotten a bit older, there are a few things, a couple of things I appreciate it, right? One is just the body of work you have, right? Like, you know, and as you get older, I think you start to really appreciate craft and beautiful work. And I think a lot of what you do, what you bring, there's just so much craft and beauty to it, which I want to really talk about. So I think I've just grown to appreciate that. Second, I just really like people who kind of stick to their guns and you are one person who kind of like has really stuck to the guns, especially in a world where we're often afraid to say what we really think for all these reasons we can and I think you Jason there's a few few others right I just really grown to admire like okay these people are willing to say what they want and they're not afraid because back then you know been older I'm like you know what a different version of a David could have been like well if I write this will a bunch of VCs get mad at me will will it stop some future deal you were like, I'm, I'm not going to I'm just going to write this. And the final part, and I think I'm going to steal this metaphor, I think from you or somebody, you know, the scene in Game of Thrones where Jon Snow comes and says like, hey, I don't know why you guys are fighting these white walkers coming from the north. So I think there's a lot of us who I think care about technology and craft and just building things. We all kind of had to find each other. But for a while, I did hold this against you. So I kind of owe you an apology. But okay. So, uh, um, well, I think that's, I mean, that's fair. It's, it's fair to have disagreements. What I find so interesting about that one particular post, and you're not the only person who picked that one out as like, that's the main post they remember of me, say, of that era, was to analyze why it was so titillatingly angering to VCs. And I think, first of all, it was wrong, right? Like, it did not pan out that way. I predicted a certain value. That value didn't come to pass. Facebook is worth 20 times what I say they weren't worth then. Mm -hmm. 
But I think it stuck a needle into the fundamental insecurity of VCs. Are the things we invest in actually worth what we think or prop up or promote that they should be worth, right? And I think the specific um, example I give in that post is a minority investment have this power to you put in X number of dollars at 1% of the company, suddenly mm-hmm. that X number of dollars is worth 100 times more because that's how valuations work. They're all based on the last money in. And I thought, do you know what? This is a little fishy. I think this can be gained. <laughs> I think sometimes it's incorrect. Now, in Facebook's case, it was not incorrect. That was a good investment. Facebook made a, or Microsoft made a good investment. That was the one I based my, my article on. But you only have to look at what has happened in the last two years to see the validation of the fundamental point. Every VC who invested in Q4 of 2021 is upside down underwater badly. Most of those investments are either going to zero or they're going to a tenth of what they were worth or they'll at least have to be written down by half. Even the best investments of that time are basically worth half at best, right? And a bunch of them worth nothing. That was the point I, I spelled out. And I think there's a there's a great um, term that I picked up from this book about um, poker playing called mm. resulting. Yes. Where you, you get your cards dealt and you know, because you're a good poker player, that there's a 27% chance that you could play this hand and you can win, right? Should you play the hand? Should you not play the hand? If you base the assessment of whether you made the right prediction on the outcome, not on the fundamental odds, you're resulting. Because you'll go like, oh, there was an amazing play, even though the person might only have a 2% chance of winning. No, that wasn't so much an amazing play as it was a lucky play. And that's my fundamental argument about the Facebook valuation thing. Facebook was, this is why we're still talking about it, was a complete outlier. Complete outlier. I mean, the entire VC industry is built on basically 10 outliers in the history of the VC industries, right? Like there's 10 companies or 20 or whatever, a small handful who've paid for all of it. Everything else has been negative. Um, And I was making the general point as part of a longer argument that, you know what? If all we do in tech is VC, we're going to end up impoverished. We need other kinds of companies that are not built on VC, and we can discuss which ones are good fits and which ones are not good fits. It's not like I have a complete vendetta against VC. I do have a grudge, and that grudge I'm nurturing from the dot com like bust it. because I, I was I involved like with a couple of VC funded yes. companies, right? And it's not, I, I, I roll that forward and I go, like, yeah, I remember how shitty that was when we had to fire people late and off, and because it was all based on, on nothing, right? And then I have my own body of work, as you say, which is mm-hmm. 20 plus years of just selling software for more than what it cost me to make it and keeping the difference and finding, do you know what? You can also actually kind of get wealthy that way, which right. is something if, if you have the discussion in, in VC terms is often poo-pooed as a lifestyle business, which is like, okay, <laughs> sure. It's a lifestyle business that's afforded us hundreds of millions of dollars in profits. I mean, I guess you can call that a lifestyle business. I can do whatever the hell I want, live wherever I want, buy whatever I want. That is a lifestyle. That's true. I think that's good. And we should have more entrepreneurs who achieve that. But I think what's so fascinating about that time was it was, as you say, it was adversarial on the small scale. We were arguing about different ways of funding. And then, as you say, do you know what? Bigger threats showed up. And once bigger mm-hmm. threats showed up, whether it's overzealous government regulation, yep. whether it's wokeness, 
whether it's any of these other forces that are far more powerful than our little squabbles about how to fund a software company, I think you then put it into perspective and go like, you know what, whether we argue about Facebook being worth $33 billion or not, just doesn't matter if we're all dead from AI getting banned or wokeness yes. infiltrating everything. So yeah. here we are. That's a yeah. white that's a white walkers uh for I, I feel like Shriram's going, damn it, I just put him on the Christmas list, strike that off. Like uh, DHH it, is no longer on the Christmas you know, list. No, I think a few things. You know, I just turned <laughs> I just turned 40, right? And one of the things you're like, first of all, I I think nurturing a long term grudge <laughs> is good for you. I recommend it to everybody, right? I think it kind of like defines you. So one, I'm super happy you have it. Um and I think it, I think DHS kind of had the, uh, it's kind of like Commander Taco of Slashdot, you know, when he wrote that famous uh, iPad, uh, iPod, I, yes, uh, iPod review. Lame, Five right? gigabytes, no wireless, lame. I remember every lame. single sentence of oh, that word. Yes. Something it, there's something about a nomad, not as much storage as a nomad, there's something about a yes. word, right? And Commander, I, I think that'll be the iconic thing, you know? And uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I like, I think DHS is right, right? But there are a couple of things in there, you know, because I want to get to some of the wokeness uh, stuff too, but one is, I think, your, you know, you and Jason and what you build, kind of avoiding sort of the world I live in, right? Silicon Valley, VC, all of that. Second, about wealth. And I think how we are unafraid to talk about your wealth is also super interesting. But the first part, you know, there is an alternative timeline where you and Jason go raise tens of millions of dollars, do the Series A, Series B staircase. You're in here, you're a TechCrunch disrupt, you, you're kind of like, you know, on a panels with you know, uh, Sam Altman or whoever the case may be, but you have avoided that, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I, I sort of understand when you, you explain sort of the argument for it, but I don't understand why you did it because it was always an option for you. You know, anybody would have funded it, you know, um, um, you know, I'm sure, sure we would have a lot of others would have. What drove that? What made you be like, well, I'm going to avoid all of that? Yeah, it's a great point because there absolutely is the alternative timeline and it very well could have happened. We had, I think by the time I stopped counting, we had 44 VCs reach out to us with introductory office, let's have coffee, or some of them were even more forward about investment. And this is back in the 2005, 2006 timeline. We're on the up and up. We're making a lot of noise. We're producing a lot of products. There's a lot of excitement, right? And we always said no, right even to the introductory calls because the fresh memory of the dot-com bust was still there. Both Jason and I had worked at VC-funded companies in the late 90s, early 2000s, and we saw what that could lead to, not just could lead to, what usually it would lead to. I'm not saying in all cases, there are the gangbusters who break out and it's amazing, but the majority of people who work at VC companies do not have that experience. They do not have the home run, billion dollar company, unicorn experience, right? That's just the math. No one is disputing yeah. the math. Um, mm -hmm. one out of 10 is going to be the home run at Series A or whatever. And there's about two orders of magnitude of companies that don't even make it that far. And Jason and I had this shared vision that what matters to us more than anything else in this business is independence. We want to be able to do whatever the hell we want Whenever the hell we want, according to whatever whimsical idea we have or impulse or whatnot. Now, that might sound reckless or totally unconsidered, and it's not. We consider our actions quite diligently, at least most of the time. Maybe not when tweeting every time, but most of the time, we try to think diligently through our options. But I don't want to ask anyone for permission. And this is why there's actually a straight line from us rejecting venture capital to us fighting head on with Apple. Um, yeah for monopoly reasons. 
I am allergic to the idea of asking anyone for permission of anything. We don't have a yes. board. We've never had a board. The mm -hmm. only kind of quote unquote investment we ever took was a secondary round from Jeff Bezos, who basically bought secondary straight from Jason Rye. No money went into the company. It was just enough to give us the financial cojones to just say, fuck all the money. Because when this was the temptation, right? When the VCs first showed up at our door in 2005, whatever, Jason and I didn't have any money. We weren't serial entrepreneurs. We didn't have home runs in the bank already. We had um, very modest bank accounts. So when someone shows up and like, hey, do you want a check for $20 million? Like it's technically not your money. It goes into the company, but like it still smells like your money. And mm -hmm. the temptation was there. Absolutely. Then we did the deal with Bezos, who mm -hmm. gave us just enough on that bank account that like, do you know what? If this is going to blow up in smoke, we're not going to be worried about rent. Right. And that gave us just such a degree of confidence to go the distance, go the full 20 years as it's been almost yeah. since then without being tempted to go into this arrangement and without falling into another arrangement where we have to ask for permission. This yeah. is why I'm so in love with the internet. This is why yeah. I think the web is the greatest computing platform of all time. This is why yeah. I'm so incensed about the app store bureaucracies. Yeah, but I, mean, I think your freedom point is so valid. You know, somebody else I think about a lot these days is uh, Richard Solomon. And when I was yeah. growing up, you know, I used to find him like too much of an ideologue, right? I used to say like, this guy is way too hardcore. Mm -hmm. Um, and because I grew up at Microsoft and, you know, kind of the op opposing team. And, you know, but now, right, one, I sort of inhabit crypto and crypto is sort of a spiritual successor so, of some of the values that he had. And again, they're kind of similar to you. I kind of like somebody who's like, well, I'm going to kind of like stand by my values on way out here on the extreme because I think society needs people like that who are kind of different yeah. crypt. Now, I want to touch on something which I think is very interesting about you, which is, uh, by the way, just for everyone in the audience, this is the first time David and I are actually sort of meeting over an audiovisual media. We kind of text a little bit, we, you know, but I feel like you know, you're somebody I kind of, I kind of quote unquote know just from your writing because you talk about goes on. And one thing I found very interesting and refreshing about you is you talk about your wealth, okay? Uh, in a sense that uh, you know, uh, you drive cars, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, and you post about you post about things which a lot of people can't afford. And the reason I find that refreshing is in Silicon Valley. Obviously, people have enormous wealth, right? Like, you know, um, and yeah, I'm not talking about just kind of the Elon or the Bezos, but, you know, people have like $10 billion. But there's kind of like a little bit of a code about like, you don't talk about like things that you can actually afford, at least on Twitter, but you do, right? And I'm curious like, about like, you know, why and, you know, and what you have learned. I'm sure you always get these people kind of criticizing you, but just why? I think it's a great point. And I think there's several aspects to it. One is I want to demystify it. And I want to demystify it for two reasons. The most important reason for me is whenever I talk to entrepreneurs and I try to convince them not to take VC money, I talk about the wealth ladder. And the wealth ladder- Why do you do that? Let me, let me meet them so I can convince them like <laughs> of all the ways. I'd be like, this is the guy who wrote this blog post. You want to take your advice from this guy? <laughs> yes. You know, actually, that blog post will be relevant to my point. So- <laughs> Um, the wealth ladder for me, and I've stepped through it. So I grew up working class in Denmark. Denmark is a great place to grow up working class, by the way. I can totally recommend it. If you're going to be working class anywhere, Denmark hits the top of the list. Um, because you don't have the sensation of deprivation in the same way that you have in a lot of other countries if you work, if you grow up like that. The, the socially democratic state, and we can also get into a discussion of that, um, affords you some opportunities that you perhaps mm -hmm. or certainly wouldn't have access to otherwise. But once you get past that, right, 
what is the thing that's going to change your life financially as an entrepreneur? In my opinion, it's the step from $0 in your bank account to $1 million. I'm just picking $1 million because it's to adjust for inflation as you see fit. As soon as you no longer have to worry about the basics of maintaining life, you don't have to worry about rent. You don't have to worry about groceries. You can go to whatever restaurant you want. You can even buy a nice watch. You can buy a nice car. You can do those basics. In my optics and experience, you've achieved 90% of all the utility that money will afford you. Now, mm-hmm. there's 10% left, and there's some really fun times in that last 10%. I also talk about that because I also do think it's good to have idea or not ideas, to have aspirations, to want yeah. to do sort of exotic things. One of the most exotic things I've done is to race cars. Racing cars is very expensive, and you just said fire to the money. It's not like buying a fancy watch that's still worth something afterwards. <laughs> you go out in that race car, you drive around in the race, there's nothing left. Literally, you go... <laughs> depreciation right away on that experience. But it's amazing and it's fun and I would do it totally over again. And I think um, I want to impart the idea that as an entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs should think of optimizing their odds for achieving the first step on the wealth ladder. How can you improve your odds to the greatest degree so that you can get to that, let's say, $1 million? Mm -hmm. Those things are in total opposition. If you're trying to optimize for unicorn-ness, that's, it's the opposite you have to do almost, not quite, but opposite in some degree of your choices for to getting to the first million. If you want to get to Unicorn Bill, you should totally go talk to you guys or other VCs. Mm-hmm. You should get on the whole train. It's probably, it is the best ticket. There are very, very few bootstrap companies. There's a handful, and we can talk about those too, but that make it to that level. Most of the ones we all know about, they were all VC funded. Yep, great. I admit the point. But... If you want the best odds of getting a million dollars, it's not a VC ticket. It just isn't. There are far higher odds paths that you can pick as a software builder that does not go through that path. So that's what I want to put out there. And then I want to demystify it in a way of of saying, you know what? I've made it past that point a fair bit a long time ago. Um, It's fun to buy nice things. But look at me. What am I doing with eight hours of my day? I'm still sitting in front of a fucking computer writing software. Because as nice as the cars are, as nice as the views, as nice as, as all the experiences that money beyond the necessities can buy you, mm-hmm. it's still number two. The best mm-hmm. things in life are free. The second best things in life are very expensive. <laughs> this is uh, Coco Chanel here. Yeah, I was, um, I was going to ask you about that quote. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the best things in life are free. I look at what I get the most joy out of in my life it, in terms of my work. It is continuing to be present. It's continuing to be in the arena. It's continuing to writing. I love writing. It's continuing to make software. I love making software. It's continuing to make waves. I also do like that a bit. And then it's family. And those two things are accessible to a lot of folks. And you you can clear those posts. So I think that the, the framework of thinking about that to me should not be sort of on the down low. And then the second point I'll say is I find it so fucking hypocritical. I find it almost nauseating when you have people walking around that are worth hundreds of millions in a hoodie pretending they're the same as the junior software engineer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're kind of the same, right? You're not the fucking same. Stop goddamn pretending. You're a modern day king ruling over a vast feudal network. And you're pretending that you're the same because there's some social credit in that. There's some social niceties in that. 
But those to me are very short term. And I will actually point to that particular part of Silicon Valley culture as integral to the rise of wokeness, integral to this idea that we're all the same, that it's actually all egalitarian, that it's all mm, mm. equally achievable. You, and I'm not saying you, I mean Silicon Valley culture at large here, Silicon Valley culture put this into the minds of people. And then they made these people show up to work for 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and glorified the complete merger of life and work. Yeah, where the hell else are people going to express their political aspirations or actually take all this egalitarian talk as fair value and start advocating for it? I think these things are linked. So yeah, maybe this, this is kind of a good way, kind of segue, right? Because um, you know, um, you know, because I, I followed folks for a, lo a long while, but I was I, I was surprised when you know I forget the timeline. Maybe this was a couple of years ago at this point, and a couple of years ago, kind of like peak wokeness era. Uh, maybe we kind of be that era is behind us, and and you folks are a little bit of a kerfuffle, as John Stewart says, uh, our own wokeness, <laughs> and uh, I remember the whole press era, right? And that was I think. You know, kind of use the white focus phenomenon that kind of like it pulled a lot of people together, right? And I'm kind of curious, yes. like, if you kind of think about that timeline, like, what was sort of the first inclination, okay, that you had, hey, there's something happening, even within your own company or from the inquiries you're getting, wherever. And, you know, what, and what do you sort of like understand or learn from the kind of the process that you went through? Yeah, it is one of the defining episodes of my career. And I'm so grateful, first of all, to have had the pleasure in hindsight to go through it. Intellectual pleasure, I shouldn't say. Uh, it was not fun <laughs> for two weeks, but a lot of intellectual pleasures, they're not fun. They're the opposite of fun. And that's why they become so meaningful. So for me, this was one of those things where it happened slowly, then all of a sudden. I've certainly been, politically speaking, on the left. Um, as I said, I grew up in Denmark. I have great affinity for the socially democratic state that Denmark has been able to build. And I lived under the misconception for a long time that America could import a lot of that. Why can't America have uh, whatever, quote unquote, free healthcare or state-run healthcare? Anyway, so I was sympathetic to a lot of the sort of issues that percolate on the left for a long time. And I thought that that's what we were going for. I thought like, hey, let's lift people up. Let's make sure everyone has equal opportunity to, to thrive and so forth. And then slowly from I think 2016 forward was when I started like smelling things that weren't quite right. So I had that smell that um, there's something here that's not quite right. There's things brewing. I don't fully understand yeah. what's brewing. Yeah, I don't think it's good. Now, this whole Trump thing was clearly an accelerant or an activator for all of this stuff. And I was yeah. as dismayed in some ways as others were at the time, like, oh my God, like norms, all the things, right? But yeah. then it started getting weirder and weirder really quickly. And yeah. all the talk about DEI, um, yeah. Right. When I first heard that term, I thought that, yes, of course. Why don't we yeah. want diversity? Why wouldn't we yeah. want, um, right. I was going to say equality, but really, that's not, yeah. that. that's the substitution a lot of people do when they hear that term. They substitute it's, equity for equality equity. because they yeah. kind of think mm -hmm. that that's the same thing, right? No, it's not the yeah. same thing at all. It's the opposite, actually. It's the direct opposite yeah. of the same yeah. thing. And then inclusion. 
which also sounds yeah. nice. Why wouldn't yeah. we want those things? And yeah. then slowly you realize, you know what? This is a covert operation. Yeah. Um, it's a covert operation where we take words that most people have pos or positive affinity to, and then we just flip them. We make them mean something else. And by the time you realize what the words actually mean, you're knee deep in shit. And the shit was um, sort of quota-based hiring, um, all the nonsense that fell from like, unless we have a or demographically statistical distribution within our little company, that's yeah. evidence of discrimination, if not racism, if not all these other things. And I just go like, as we step through this ladder and as things yeah. accelerate, I go like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Yeah. I, I'm not on board with this. What are, what are we yeah. doing here? And then we had a series of minor events at our company that were real turning points. Like we had uh, uh, one case with a customer writing in, this is, I think, whatever, 1819, something like that, um, asking, is Basecamp safe for conservatives? Mm. At first, when I got this question, I was like, that's a curious question. I don't fully know what that even means. There are people inside of the company at the time who very much thought they knew what that meant. And they thought they knew that the answer had to be absolutely not. Conservatives are these violent uh, rednecks that's going to yeah. whatever cause mayhem and violence. The safest we can do is simply just to deny them service up front. They don't have to have done anything. If they have the wrong political affiliation, they should not be able to get service on our platform. That was a big thing for me where it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm I'm not on board with this at all. I am not yeah. on this team at all. And then we had a series of other things like that where I just go like the full reveal of what DEI actually means became yeah. apparent to me. And I just went like, this is nuts. This is a complete dead end, bad detour. But you look around and you see everyone's doing it. Everyone is reciting the same fucking bullshit. At the time, 2020, I think there was this hilarious post um, someone summarized what the CEOs of 140 major public companies said, and they all used the same phrase. There's more work to be done. That became sort of this <laughs> mantra. And you hear oh, these gosh. mantras and you go like, this is not even a political movement. This is a religious movement. This is yeah. not about building coalitions. This is not about making things fair for everyone. This is a power grab. It's a grift. It's all the nastiness that you could imagine out of it which has now then become apparent. I mean, a lot of the fundamental pillars of the whole thing has fallen apart. Uh, many of the key characters involved in that movement and uh, affiliated movement have been shown to be corn men or grifters or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was not apparent, first of all, for me, because I did not have the intellectual background. And it mm -hmm. was not really until I started reading up on the intellectual background of wokeness, of DEI, um, of... Uh, 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 what is it, centering the margins uh, all the way back to Marcuse and um, the paradox of tolerance and all of these things, all the, the long march through the institutions, the, the yeah. right. sort of body of work that underpins this philosophy that you can trace back to at least the 60s, if not the 20s, right? Once right. you understand that, you go like, the first thing I went was like, I lean back in my chair and go, do you know what? Machiavelli would be proud. This is a psyop of grade A quality. I don't think it's yeah. stable. I don't think it's going to last. But holy shit, to capture the moment and culture of not just a whole country, but the entire yeah. Western world yeah. and do it from plans laid down in the 1960s, I am in awe of the intellectual machinery that was required to pull that shit off. 
But also, this is the devil. I mean, this is literally just the absolute dead end, and we're going to drown ourselves and everyone with it if this allows to reach its logical conclusions. We got to fight. I think, uh, yeah, I agree with uh, my perspective on DEI, you know, some starts out somewhat similar to yours, right? Like, you know, both Shriram and I grew grew up in India. DEI was not a thing there. There are like other similar like kind of stand-in stuff on like reservations and things like that. But really, DEI is like not a thing. You kind of like come here and for a, a while, it's just business as usual. You know, we have like normal jobs, go to work, the usual stuff. And we are like climbing the, the career ladder, getting promoted, all of that stuff. And for me particularly, right, it's like, you know, all my life, I was like, well, you know, if you work really hard, you kind of get like the right degrees, you kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, I worked in computer science and tech companies for all my life. Like, that's what I studied. That's what I went to work with. And then, you know, this DEI thing comes out of there. And to your point, the theory of it sounds like, of course, yeah, like you know, you, you want to have like inclusivity. Like, why would you exclude anybody? That makes sense. And you kind of like think about it. And then you start for me, I started seeing the side effect of it where it was like, oh, but you, how do you, how can you hire that person where they don't look like this? Or how can you not hire this person? And I started thinking, is that what people think of me? Like, if I show up at some place, are they like, oh, you know, she's like a DEI candidate. And I was like, that really fucking sucks. I don't want to be in a place where it's like, I'm that minority person and I'm a checkbox that's been checked off. I, you know, I want people to feel like, yeah, you know, she, she has a viewpoint and, you know, she kind of like belongs at this table. That's why she's here. And I never wanted to feel like it was like a token thing. And you would not believe the number of times, and Shriram knows this, I've been invited to panels or given like board seats or like random because, hey, we're looking for a woman. And you're like, oh, my God, like you just said the thing that was like yeah. the one thing you shouldn't be saying yeah. to me. <laughs> you can't yeah. do that. So. It's it's so strange that this is the this is the hill that our industry chose to die on over the last couple of years because I think this is so detrimental, like you said, to just you know us as a uh, the, all the goodness that we did is just out the window by this like one thing. It has to come down to merit. It yeah. has to come down to merit, and this is yeah. why for a moment I was really confused when terms like colorblindness became taboo. You're like. Yeah. You go back to Martin Luther King or others who were actually doing the heavy lifting of uh, civil rights uh, yeah. movements in the United States, and you go like, that's what they're talking about. Content yeah. of your character, it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. And then we get ourselves to a place, which is the definition of anti-racism, where if we see discrepancies, disparate outcomes in terms of uh overall percentages, they don't match. We have to use discrimination, if not outright racism, to fix it. Mm -hmm. And you go like, that is some twisted logic. Absolutely not. The E, if the E didn't stand for uh, equity, which is same outcome for everyone, if it stood for equality of opportunity, we wouldn't get behind that. We wouldn't want the best candidate in all scenarios to get the job, get the promotion, get all those things. But we got so far down this nonsense path that because we saw in tech companies in particular, not an equal distribution of gender or race or whatever, 
the only explanation that was available to people too far on the left was this has to be discrimination. It has to be racism because everyone is the same. This is where mm. blank slateism comes in. We all have the same background. We all have the same blocks to play. No, we don't. No, we don't. By the time it gets to the hiring position, there is a wide discrepancy in everything from credentials to IQ to experience to whatever. There's just huge variety, even within the same families. This is one of the points that uh, Thomas Sowell is fond of making. Yeah, you can't yeah. even get the same outcomes within the same family. People grew up under the, exactly the same conditions in the same household with the same shared DNA. How would you possibly imagine that you're going to get the equity of outcomes for people mm -hmm. far yeah. more separated than, than that, right? So it leads to this really bad place from a fundamental misunderstanding that everyone who shows up at the interview, they have essentially the same, right? So, so if we don't see the percentages that we would like to see from an aesthetic uh, demographic background, it is evidence of discrimination, which is just, it's the cardinal sin of all the DEI bullshit that has infiltrated <laughs> corporate America and tech in particular. But I say all of that, and I'm extremely critical on it. I've gotten more and more critical the more I sort of let the wheels turn in my head and read about it and so on. It's just such mm. a bad idea. And this is what happens sometimes. Bad ideas can take hold, but they can also get ejected. And this is what has given me so much enthusiasm for the moment, for 2024 and onward, is that I thought we were in for two decades of woke reign. I thought this is going to take so long to undo, unpack, and get back to a concept of equality that is merit-based, that is colorblind, that is all these wonderful characteristics yeah. we all want to sign up behind. I thought, you know, shit, this is going to be so long. And then it just happened. Now, are we finished? Absolutely not. Yeah. But are we like 90% there? Yeah, yeah. Tech companies. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Not not put, culture at large. Tech. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they put it up at ninety percent. But by the way, I, 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 there's something else I want to talk about. But I think one of the defining moments I think for me in this turnover is Elon's acquisition of Twitter. Oh my god. Right. Like you know, setting aside everything else about that whole story, like I do think this changed the dynamic in such a dramatic way. For example, some of the characters who you know wrote pieces on you, etc. Just not even on Twitter anymore. So I think that's kind of a defining one. Okay, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit because there's something you know which has always interested me about your body of work, which I want to ask you about. Um, I grew up in a corporate and two corporate environments. One is Microsoft, one is Facebook, where it was efficiency and impact and sort of the muscle of code and product that was prioritized. Right? It was like you know the impact. How many people can you get it out to? How you know uh, how, how fast can you make this thing? But I think your body of work, right, uh, and what you talk about, there is craft involved, there's beauty involved, right? Like, and it is artisan in nature, and not artisan sort of like a derogatory. Sometimes we say when there's an artisan coffee thing, but there is like you focus a lot on, you know, beauty and elegance, right? I was going to say apple-like, but maybe that's not the best <laughs> metaphor uh, for, for, uh, with maybe twenty twenty-four apple. But I, I'm kind of curious about what is, why does beauty in code? Uh, you know, something most people can't see. Why does that matter to you? Why should that matter to, you know, the app, the programmers or developers watching this? It's a great discussion. And I think it even starts one step before that. And it goes to the discussion we had about VC. Um, a lot of the economics around VC has to, that's mathematically required, put growth 
above all else. Growth is the number one metric in any scenario when you look at that funding model. So that seeps in to everything else downstream from that. Everything else becomes in service of growth. If you take that block out, and Jason and I have, growth is not the top priority for us. It's not even in the top three, not even top five. It'll probably make the top 10. I think some degree of growth is healthy and good and whatever, but it's not at the top of the chart. You end up prioritizing very different things and you end up having an affinity to very different things. And I look at uh, this thing as to some degrees, people would say despairingly as a lifestyle business. I say it endearingly. I want this to be a lifestyle business. I want this to be a pleasant place where I want to work for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. You can't do that with growth as number one, or at least it's very rare to see someone have this okay, damn. Okay, no, I want to, okay, I want to, I, I think, it's, I want to challenge you on this part of it, right? Because you brought us the few points, because look, I, I totally get it for the kind of business you folks are building, right? But there are entire different kinds of business. Let's say, for example, you wanted to build a ride-sharing business, right? You wanted to build a social network. Like, these are companies where, you know. No, it has to be that. Great. Winner takes all. Right. It, yes. Winner, it's winner take all, right? Yes. So, which is you know, why I don't I do that. It's, <laughs> so, exactly. That's, that's so also I, downstream I, I, from the same, it's downstream from the same values. So, it, yes, it, but so I guess my question for you is, is if you are in a winner take all business, how do you think about beauty? Does it not matter to you uh, at all? Or, yeah, or is it really it, it, it cannot, it cannot be number one. It can't even make the top three. Because I think if you are in a winner take all business, you have to submit to the logic of growth. You have to put that mm -hmm. top on the altar, which is one of the reasons why so much of my advocacy is, do you know what? There are other tech businesses than winner takes all. In fact, most tech businesses are not winner take all. Certainly, if you look within tooling and so forth, if you look within social networks and so forth, absolutely. I would never encourage anyone. I've actually discouraged people who've written me and say, like, I want to build another Twitter, but I don't want to take VC. I want to build yeah. it in this organic way and I say, forget about it. That's not compatible. If you want to dethrone Twitter or Facebook, uh, go to Sand Hill Road, raise $100 million to give it your best shot. You're probably going to fail, but that's the path you got to take if you want a shot. You're not going to artisanally grow this. Basecamp, a project management tool. Hey, our email system. They're not winner-take-all domains. And then you can play on a completely different board with completely different rules and different values. So after I put growth aside as the most important thing, I put the other things I really truly care about, the things that make me happy, the things that get me into a flow state, the things that make me proud. Yeah. I get proud and into a flow state when I make really nice things to the best of my capacity, preferably a little further, such that I'm also learning. And I share that from a spirit of, I want to make a viable, not just viable, I want to make a successful company. That's important mm -hmm. because otherwise I don't get to keep doing what I love doing. Right. But once that bar is cleared, I don't really care whether we have a hundred or a million daily active users or a hundred million daily active right, users. Right, In right, fact, right. I'd probably prefer a million daily active users because once you get to 100 million daily active users or whatever you want to metric you right. want to use for hyper growth, you need a hyper organization. Most organizations. Okay, okay. So let's say, let's say, okay. so let's I don't say, want that. So let us say you are the, you know, the DHS Jason, you know, you know, business. You don't have to grow. Fine. You focus on beauty, right? What does beauty mean to you in growth? So it's very specific and it's very, um, actually a bit of an acquired taste. I remember when I started learning photography. So I would look at pictures and I'd go like, that's a nice picture. 
but I couldn't tell you why it was a nice picture because I did not know about composition rules. I did not know about rules mm -hmm. of third. I did not know about exposure. I did not know about all these things. I could not clarify to you. So trying to sell, tell someone who don't know about code, like what makes beautiful code in the specifics is actually kind of difficult, but you can give it a parallel. I think of code like I think of prose. I think of myself as a software writer, not a software engineer. I don't want an engineer hat. That's not what I do. That's not what brings me joy. Occasionally, I have to put that hat on. We got to do performance testing. It's very methodical, right. scientific. But most of the time, what I do is I write stories that a computer can understand and execute. And I want those That's stories to sing with the kind of prose that an Orwell or a Hemingway or whoever else writes the best prose in the world could produce within context, within clarity and all these other things. But that's how I think about it. And I think it's a good parallel where you can say, um, I know how to write. Like I know the English language. I can put together a full sentence. Yeah, that doesn't mean what you write is worthy of Hemingway or Orwell. <laughs> like there's, there's a level of beauty and... Uh, energy that's present in the best prose writers in the world. That's what I try to aspire to. And a lot of it is, is these fine details, as it often is. Like, why is this sentence so gorgeous mm -hmm. in, um, in The Old Man of the Sea, for example? Like the way he, Hemingway describes like the, how the harpoon goes into the fish. Like, yeah. why is that compelling? You think it's such an objective thing. Oh, you're describing a fisherman and he's out there fishing and so on. But it's such an engrossing story. I mean, I actually, yes. I read The Old Man of the Sea recently. This is why I refer to it. And I couldn't put it down. I was just like, holy shit, I read so much nonfiction that occasionally picking up one of the great works of Western literature and <laughs> reading through it is a mind-blowing experience. And I went like, yes. That's what I want. I want my code to sing with the clarity and the prose of the harpoon going into the fish like Hemingway would have told. So, David, David, I'll just say the line that I write stories at my computer screen, that's just beautiful. Like you should, like that's like, that's going in the title <laughs> for this uh, episode. Okay. Um, I want to ask you, what can teach us what you've learned from 10 years of Lamar? Yes. So um, what was really interesting about learning how to drive a race car was it was not my first take at the roadie of learning something new. I already had a method and I had developed that method from programming, from writing, and even from photography. So I'd been through like three domains of step curves. So I knew like the meta learning principles that I wanted to apply to right. race car driving. One thing was identify the experts. This is what I always do. I show up in a new domain. Who knows shit? Who's for real? Who can teach me something? And then I approach those individuals with as little ego as I could possibly muster. I know nothing. You know everything. That's not true in sort of an absolute sense, but it's a very helpful tool for learning. Because if you take your own ego out of the way and you're not trying to impress people, you can just soak up more information much faster. Then the second thing is there are no speed limits. This is a title of an essay by Derek Sivers. I absolutely love, recommend everyone to check it out. He talks about how he learned essentially a music degree in like a fourth of the time because mm -hmm. working with an instructor who knew that the four-year curriculum at Bard or wherever, it was bullshit. It was a pace set for chumps. I think that's the term he used. In the, it's set for like the average, right? If you don't want to be average or you're willing to put in above average effort and intensity into your learning experience, don't run at the pace that's set for chumps. 
you can right. run much faster. So what I did was I identified the best drivers that I could possibly get access to. I showed up as a sponge, and then I tried to learn as much as I could, as quickly as I could, without any regard for accolades or trophies or even completion. I would jump through the lower ranks of racing as quickly as I could. I wouldn't even finish a season. I'd get to like, I'd get four races in into some season. Then I'd realize, you know what? I could probably go top three, top four now. I'm good enough for that. Boom. I need to go in a bigger pond. Never ever do I want to be the big fish in a small pond. As soon as I can see the edges of the pond, it's time to skip into the next one. And you can just accelerate your learning so much if you follow some of those fundamental principles of learning that I went from getting my driver's license at age 25. So mm -hmm. I didn't have a driver's license while I lived in Copenhagen. Copenhagen is not a car-friendly place. There's 180% tax on buying a car. It was just not in the cards for me. I had a pair of rollerblades that I got around the city on. So I'm 25 by the time I get my driver's license. I'm 27 mm -hmm. by the time I sit in my first race car. Um, and then at 30, is that right? Yeah, I think at 30, uh, 31, I'm on the grid at Le Mans. Yeah. No, but and I think you have a great story somewhere, which if I, I may be quoting this, where I think two stories. One, I think you're an instructor who made even the driest material great. And the second is, the, I might be, the first time you had to operate a clutch in a car and you kind of had to figure out the model, which I, could you just, yes. you, could you explain yes. both of those? Yeah, no, that one's great. I'll start with the last one. So I was learning how to drive a car in Copenhagen uh, for the first time, and it was a stick car that a lot of cars were sticks at the time in the US, so you didn't get the benefit of uh, automatic transmission. And I wanted to understand bite point. So bite point is where the clutch engages and you actually get um, roll off, right? And the guy would right. just give me this vague, like, eh, you'll like feel it. I was like, no, 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 that's not what I want to know. Give me the specifics, goddammit. I want to know exactly when to feel that it starts biting. I want to know how long to hold it while it's biting before I can let it out quickly. I want to know how quickly I can let it out and I want to stay in this very small loop. This is another principle of, of learning, is that you, you make your loops tiny, such that the feedback cycle is very quick. And you focus on one element, and then you perfect yep. that before you move on. So I wanted to perfect the clutch movement before I even mm -hmm. cared about like left turn, right turn, blinkers, whatever. Yes. And I tried to apply that going forward, perfect the short cycles as much as you can, then you get that down, then you can move on. No, but I think there's something profound you just said, which I think, um, you know, I think about the OODA loop a lot, which is like, how quickly yeah. can you go through a loop and improve yourself? And one of the points I think you make, uh, you know, I think one of your podcasts was how a lap in a race is like yes. a couple yes. of minutes, right? Yes. So I think, and my interpretation of that is that it gives you two things. One is you have to be purely focused, right? And I think you have this great line somewhere, which is like, it's like drinking a bottle of flow. And the second is every two minutes you get to reset and try again, which I mean, yes. like if you're starting a company, you can't try that again two minutes. So no. I, talk to me about like, you, when you're going through a lap in Lamont, what are you thinking? What does it look like? Walk us through that experience. So this is what's so beautiful about flow. When you're in that state, you're actually not thinking. It's not a conscious process where you're aware of your own thoughts. That's why it's a flow state. That's why you lose mm -hmm. track of time. When I'm at Le Mans, I'm in a complete flow state. There is not conscious thought. Obviously, there's thought, but it's all integrated into movement and actions in a way that almost feels um, like subconscious. Mm -hmm. And that degree of oneness 
with the materials, in the case, the car. So you have a number of instruments here. You have your steering wheel. Your hands are busy with that. You have two feet. You're, you're just using, in modern race cars, you don't use the clutch. But you have one foot on the brake. You have one foot on the gas. And you have to blend these inputs to get the perfect line through a corner. And then you have these other inputs. If when you get better, you develop a sense of the G-load, as it's called, the slip angle of the car. You can feel it through your body. And you pick up these minute details like, oh, my right rear is spinning slightly too quickly. I have to do a quick adjustment at the wheel. All of this happens in like a symphony or a dance. And you're not consciously thinking, oh, the next thing I have to do is I have to push the... No, no, no. If you're doing that, you're operating way too slowly. This is why it can't actually be a conscious procedure because you have to react within milliseconds to get it just right. Um, and what I also love about race cars is that they they put your... There's a Danish saying, you, you put your hand on the stove, um, which is basically skin in the game. There's a lot of skin in the game when you drive a race car. If you get it wrong, like not only is it going to be expensive, it may hurt or you could die. Now, <laughs> that level of criticality is not available to most modern humans most of the time. They live in very uh, confined, safe environments. And I guess that's that's good. That's why we don't all die all the time. Um, and race cars also, is, I mean, I don't want to overstate. The race cars are very safe these days compared uh, how it used to be in like the 1960s. A third of the people who would start the grid at uh, a Formula One season would die. Like they wouldn't be there. It's nothing like that anymore. Um, yeah. But the risk factor is still there. And it really focuses your mind. When you have skin in the game that if you make a mistake, it's going to be expensive, it's going to hurt, or you might die. It really sharpens, like literally sharpens your focus. If you think of like a predator, right? Uh, you're paying attention to all these things. Woof. Now you look at one thing and you ignore everything else. And the, it's just such a gorgeous feeling. Like to me, it's the closest thing to like a high that I can, I haven't had a lot of actual highs in my life. I've had a couple. Um, this is the closest thing. And What's so beautiful about race cars is that I get this in programming too occasionally when I'm ever so blessed to be dealing with a peak problem. In a race car, I can almost get it every single time I close the door. That's why it's so damn addictive. It's like a key. You can turn it on. Flow states are not like that. If you study sort of the history and science of flow, it's it's mostly serendipitous. It's like when a, the right problem at the right time, you, you're so fortunate. With race cars, it's not like that. You get it all the time. Well, by the way, I think Arthi, this might mean I might have to start racing. It's kind of the uh, answer to this. Like he told me, um, you know, one of the things uh, I love about, uh, you know, your writing online is you talk a lot about the tools you use. And I think, look, you're very much like an artist in many ways. Um, and I just love that. Like, honestly, I was just telling David the other day, like I bought, you know, Arthi, like those KF speakers we have literally happened because of his blockbuster. Right? Like, so that company owes you a lot of uh, referral money or at least one order. So, you know, and I think a lot of people love hearing stuff. I love hearing this stuff. So talk to us about, one, just what do you use every day, right? Your setup, your beautiful, like, you know, office, you know, the software you wind up using, and what it's just like a regular work day, like, look like. Yeah, let me um, let me set that up in the sense that um, there are some people who really poo-poo the idea that we should even care about this stuff. That, like, whatever gets the job done. And this connects a little bit to the discussion we had about four, which is where's your value hierarchy? If growth is number one or, or whatever, you are willing to sacrifice nice tools, nice what, whatever gets the job done. I'm not right. that person. I care immensely about the tools that I use to get the job done. Because for me, the act 
of making things is in itself the reward. Now, I also like to have made something that's very rewarding, but it's more rewarding for me to be in the state of making things. And to be in that state, to me, I have to work with beautiful things. I have to work with beautiful tools and I have to do it with a method that I find aesthetically appealing. This is the other interesting discussion in computer science. There are people in computer science who don't have a lot of love for aesthetics as a word. They've usually- Have you, have you, have you ever read the essay? I, I, I want to ask you exactly that. Have you ever read the essay, Worse is Better by Richard Gabriel? Like, yes, and I do agree with that in the high level sense of thing. I'd actually say Ruby on Rails is worse is better. Most things that succeed is worse is better in that regard. <laughs> I don't agree on the nitty gritties of when you make things. Anyway, okay. to get to your questions of, of how you build things. So this is also funny. Whenever I post a, a photo of my work setup, I get two comments they, every time. First is, you have a nice view. Thank you very much. Yes, this is one of the few things material um, advancement can provide for you. And I very much enjoy it and I like to share it. And I think it's one of the best actually aspirational goals to reach for. You could show someone a nice car and you're like, yeah, you got to be into cars. Everyone, everyone appreciates a nice view of nature. So it's really universal as a carrot. And I also think it's such a wholesome carrot. First of all, a nice view of nature is actually not something that's kept only to the rich. You can actually walk out in nature. You can enjoy nature. So all of that, right? Number two, <laughs> what the hell are you doing with that Apple mouse? And that Apple keyboard. <laughs> like, are you crazy? Is this just a photo shoot? You don't actually use those things, right? What are you doing with just one screen? Why don't you have 25 screens? And I always replied, you know what? I've been using computers for 40 years. The Apple keyboard is my favorite keyboard of all time. The Apple mouse is my favorite mouse of all time. And I will be one screen until I die. So... I just, I, I find things that I really like and then I, I have a right. tendency to stick with it. I mean, I'm whatever generation of the Apple mouse. I've liked it since the beginning. I think it's a beautiful design and I find it so fascinating. It's to me the perfect encapsulation of whether people understand trade-offs or not. So the number one pushback that I see on the Apple mouse is that you have to turn it over to charge it. So like once every three months, you got to turn it over and it looks a little silly because you've got to put... And the cable is yeah. upside down, right? And people take a picture of the upside down mouse and they go, ha ha, that's stupid. Yeah. And it is in some abstract, irrelevant sense. You have no sense of proportions if that's what mm -hmm. you focus on here. The other three months out of the year, I just use a great mouse where the entire surface is a trackpad. That's awesome. Right. Such a great mouse, right? So... I, I love sharing that because it blows the minds of so many programs that these are the tools <laughs> I use. And then I use TextMate. It's a text editor that I help. Wow. Um, that, a that's, a, that's, that's, that's a throwback. That's, that's yes. a throwback. Yeah. Wow. Uh, how, wait, that's, why not, you know? I, 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 I'll be biased. I love TextMate. You know, every time, from time to time, I'll still use it. It's so great. It's such a great. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I can sort of see you using TextMate because I think there was an era of Mac software. Yeah. I think of TextMate. I think of Delicious Library. Yes. Uh, there's a few of those. And they seem to all sort of, I don't want to say died. I wish some of them are alive and being used. And I don't want to sort of like get a lot of like angry comments. But mm -hmm. I think they've kind of been supplanted by like the VS Code or whatever sort of like the cloud services option are. So why not VS Code or what sort of like most people wind up using these days? It, you're absolutely correct. We asked the audience at Rails World a few months ago, which editor do you use? 90% at least, maybe even 95% use VS Code. So VS Code has one, the market share 
battle of, uh, of the minds. And great kudos and credit to Microsoft for that. I mean, I'm actually I'm in awe of that. Does that mean I want to use VS Code? Hell no. Um, you will cry <laughs> text mate from my dead cold hands. And this comes back to why did I pick Ruby in the first place? When I picked up Ruby, there was no one, virtually no one using Ruby professionally in the West to build systems. Yeah, but I just want to say like Ruby, but just people not remember this. Ruby was kind of this Japanese thing yeah. uh, uh, at that time, right? Like it was, I remember it was, kind of, it was not mainstream at all. Like it was kind of like yeah. programming language nerds. And so uh, it, um, why Ruby when you were building Rails? Actually, I would love to hear that. Yeah, I think, first of all, let me answer the questions in, in connection. I don't give a yeah. shit what other people use. I don't care. Market share for me is not a relevant metric of evaluation. It just doesn't enter it, which goes back to the whole growth thing. This is why I don't change growth myself. I don't care right. what other people use. If I am the last person in the world to still use TextMate, it makes no difference to me. I don't care whether there's a million people use TextMate or there's two people who use TextMate. It does not change my interaction with that program because it already does everything I need it to do. And it does it in such a aesthetically pleasing way. I'll actually um, say I like TextMate for a million reasons, but the reason perhaps that will get most people baffled is I will not give up its text rendering algorithm. To me, VS Code is ugly, in part because the text rendering is unpleasing to my eyes. Now, that's not a universally applicable thing, but it's a grudge I've held against Windows for a very long time. I've tried Windows a couple of times, sort of in, in recent decade, and usually where things fall down is on font rendering for me. Wait, hold on. Wait, what about VS, VS Code on Mac is fantastic. Yeah, it doesn't render fonts like TextMate does. I don't know what the secret sauce is. I don't even care what it is. I can't even fully articulate it. I can just look at two screens and go, yeah, I like that one. I'm going to pick that one. Now, again, there's also features. There's also other things. But one of the things I don't want, I don't want an IDE. I don't want an integrated development environment because I want to deal with the individual characters. It is like a forced constraint that forces me to make Rails so good that you don't need help to write it. That right. when I'm writing it manually, I'm typing out everything. There's no auto-completion. I don't actually, use, I, I love AI when we talk about that too. I don't use AI for auto-completion. I don't find that a pleasurable way of, of working. I don't want anyone auto-completing my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I want my thoughts to be able to flow through the filters that I have in my head. And then I can get some feedback. I love asking AI, what do you think of this? Can you help me find a bug? Right. Can you look up this API? Wonderful. Great. I'm not eluded in those ways. But I do care about my tools in a, in a way where I think of a chef that like, the grip on this knife, the sharpness on this blade, the exact length, that's what I use when I want to um, cut a fish. Yeah. I, I, I would say there is something so admirable about your focus on the craft, the beauty, the intangibles, uh, you know, in so many ways. And I think kind of like it, there's, there's this connecting thread through everything you do, um, everything you write, uh, which maybe is an interesting segue to this topic, which is kind of top of mind when people think of you guys these days, uh, which is uh, Apple, right? Because for me, you know, the company which often people bring up in reference, so some of the concepts you talk about, like getting it perfectly right, doing things because it feels right, what would be the reference? Apple, right? Like, you know, make the, and, and it is interesting that we live in an era where everyone has to build things that go through their gates, uh, and pay them potentially 30%. Now, 
you folks, you know, I, I like I want to get maybe get to uh, find an interview. You folks obviously been in like a bunch of kerfuffles with Apple, uh, you know, getting your app blocked, getting it unbanned. And I guess where I would start was like, you know, if you could send a message to Tim Cook, right? And Tim Cook with his pressures of, you know, app store revenue, growing the business, wanting to keep the Mac and the iOS a safe place, and also, you know, want to have open source development, all the good stuff. Like, what would you want to tell Tim? Or maybe you already told Tim. <laughs> well, let me start with this. You're breaking my fucking heart, Tim. You really are. I've been an Apple goddamn super fan for over 20 years. I've advocated Apple in all sorts of arenas, exactly for the reason you say. Apple does have an unusual, uncanny affinity and culture that values beauty and aesthetics and simplicity and all these things. And there's they're why I still use Apple products. But they've unfortunately entered into the, the resource curse. The resource curse of this gossip of money that is coming out from the toll booth. This free money, a seemingly free money. Google has suffered under the same resource curse to some extent that like when the ads just spewing, nothing else you do ends up sort of mattering. I mean, Google to me is really the terminal case because they're such a basket case of a company. They can't seem to produce any product that they'll stick with for longer than five minutes. Their graveyard is legendary, constant churn over in it, and none of it matters. None of the market forces are exerting themselves in the focusing ways that would happen inside a normal functioning company because they don't have to. The money just keeps flowing from the ads. And Apple is in great danger of corrupting their soul on the same principle. That as the ad revenue or the toll boot revenues increase, they're the easiest kind of money. And it ends up, this is Steve Jobs used to talk about this with IBM and, and the other monopolists of his time. That resource curse crowds out the people who care about the craft, crowds out the people who see computing as a series of collaborative games. You can win one game in computing, let's say mobile phones. But if you're so damn extractive and you're so damn abusive, by the time we have to play the next round, let's say it's uh, VR or something else, people will remember there's not a lot of great successes out of the social sciences, but yeah. the prisoner's dilemma, and especially the repeated prisoner's dilemma, is yeah. one of the sort of hallmark achievements of that whole. But is it, but is it, is it actually true in the technology world? Like, yeah. we live in, I think yeah. Microsoft I, just I became think, the most. So I think, uh, Shriram, I yeah. think what DH is trying to say is the VR one where Netflix pulled out, YouTube pulled out, Spotify pulled out of like wanting to uh, love like streaming within, like, the, you know, had the Apple's VR uh, hardware interface. And I think you're starting to see this pattern, you're, right? Like, look, I went through this when I worked at Facebook and, uh, you know, the uh, the app store monopoly and just like, it it doesn't affect like the, the big incumbents as much as it affects like smaller companies. And it's just disproportionate in how much it just destroys uh, uh, smaller apps that's just trying to like, you know, do something fun, put it out there, make something useful. And then you have this like, you know, just very uh, monopolistic kind of set of uh, rules, practices there. So I see that, but I think, Shriram, like the thing that I think DHS is, I, I think you're referring to is the one where now these big companies are basically teaming up and being like, nope, we're not going to do that because they've had it. They've had enough. And that's exactly the historical parallel I would implore Tim to study. It's Microsoft. 
So Microsoft yeah. was in Apple's shoes in the late 90s. And they yeah. grew such, they poisoned the ground so badly for so many developers, in part because of their stance on open source, that they turned off an entire generation of developers who could not wait for Microsoft to get its comeuppance. So when the Mac was finally a viable platform because they embraced uh, Unix technology and so on, developers jumped in droves. They drove Apple forward with a passion that stemmed from their hatred of Microsoft. Yep. And that is what Apple is currently cultivating. They're cultivating a hatred from developers who've been screwed over time and again on the current regime that at some point when they have the chance, they will pay it back. And I know there's a million reasons you can point to, but I like to see the failure of Windows Phone through this lens somewhat. That the Windows Phone was um, something Microsoft poured billions into doing, by all metrics, should have been able to get a foothold into. They could not get app developers to make apps for it. I think part of the reason, not the whole reason, there are a bunch of other reasons, but part of the reasons was that so many developers still had such a vivid memory of Microsoft being an abusive monopolist, being the cut off the air supply people that they did not want to lend a finger to Microsoft to sort of help them out. In fact, they embraced Apple's platform with open arms. They thought mm -hmm. Apple is different. They're going to be different. Um, narrator, yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, uh, but, but, but can you go for a few more minutes? Because I think there's a couple more topics yeah, sure. you want to hit. Or, okay. Yeah, so uh, I think, DHS, uh, I wanted to ask you about your uh, most recent piece on the, the, the Danish fairy tale blog post, right? Um, to me, you know, look, you're a very opinionated person. Uh, most often than not, the pieces you write, you tell us what is going to be right in the title, right? So I kind of fully went in being like, oh, okay, like this is going to be like, this is not what you think it is. It is sort of that, like to me, it was very interesting. You know, Sriram and I had recently made a trip to Copenhagen. Um, and so for us, it was like a great comparison to like what we'd experienced as tourists to what you had said about like living there and life there. And then we've been, you know, we had Americans, um, you know, immigrated from India. So we've been in the U.S. for, you know, a long time, over a decade. Um, and so for me, this was like a great piece to go look at and compare and contrast. Right. And I fully expected it to be like, oh, um, the, the Danish life kind of sucks and the American life is amazing. Uh, and it was going to be like a very polarizing kind of uh, article. But I love how nuanced it was. I love how it ended. And I love the appreciation for the Danish lifestyle and what they've been able to go achieve. But it all comes with all these caveats. Like if you're willing to go sacrifice and do a bunch of this stuff, then sure, that life is for you. But at the end of it, you know, um, somebody like a DHS can like make it in the U.S., but somebody from the U.S. probably cannot make it um, in a city like Copenhagen, right? Like that. To me, that was like a very poignant point. So I would love for you to like talk about why did you write that piece, and what like what kind of triggered it, and what have you heard since then from like feedback and people's point of view? Yeah. So what triggered it was actually moving back to Denmark in 2020 when the pandemic was going. We looked around and saw the American response and went like, "Eh, this is nonsense." Yeah. Yeah. The school's closed forever, masking kids, all this. This is nonsense. We don't want a part of it. We got to go somewhere that's best for our kids. So we looked, we actually took a globe. 
We spun it around a few times and said, where do we want to go? I can work yeah. from anywhere. We're like, should we go to New Zealand? Should we go to Australia? Should we go there or here or the other place? And then we thought like, you know what? Um, obviously, I'm from Denmark. I have some family in Denmark. This just seems easy. Um, and actually, also was easy. At the time, borders were being closed. If you had a Danish passport, suddenly you couldn't get into the country. So let's just give it a try for six months. And that six months ended up turning into three years. And it gave me this really delightful <laughs> reminder of what Danish society is beyond the postcard. Yeah. Because I moved from Denmark to the United States in 2005. I've been living in the United States for 15 years. I ended up with this fairy tale view of Denmark in my memory. It was never correct. It didn't account for all the compromises. But that was what I had in my head, in part when I was advocating for political topics in the US. I was like, why can't we just be like Denmark? Why can't it like Denmark seems to have 400 different things figured out, right? Can't the US, the smartest, richest country in the world, just import all the best ideas? Why wouldn't we hold us to that standard rather than the standard that a lot of American discord holds itself? Well, at least we're not um, Venezuela. Yeah, okay, that's setting the bar around the low. Shouldn't we be setting the bar to the most well-functioning societies in the world? Um, and then I moved back to Denmark with my American wife and my three kids that are also more American than they are Danish. And I realized, um, oh shit, <laughs> everything that's good about Denmark is true, but, and here comes a laundry list of yeah. compromises, trade-offs, and sacrifices that are necessary to ensure that the things that are good about the country are still good. And what really got me then fired up was, you know what? I've actually been doing the U.S. discourse, and I just mean in my head, not broadly, a disservice by advocating so forcefully for Danish policies in the United States without actually equally forcefully advocating for the trade-offs required to it. So a lot of the big topics people talk about is obviously Denmark have quote-unquote free education. Well, when we say free education, it means state-run education. Now, that sounds horrible to an American. They envisioned the DMV or something. It's actually not horrible. I got a state-run education. It was, it was, it was fine. I'm not sure I'm going to say it's great. In, in the abstract, it was great in the sense that I didn't have to pay tuition. I got good instruction. It was not a four-year luxury vacation at a fucking lavish hotel with pools and basketball courts and all this other stuff. It was not that. It was far more mundane, and it cost the Danish state, I think, about $7,000 a year. I think that's mm. how the math works out. Like, you can just go in. Do you know what? That's a fairly bare-bones experience, but it's adequate. It's good, but it's state-run. I didn't mm. get to pick whatever I wanted to study. Amer Danes don't get to pick whatever they want to study. They get a GPA. That GPA determines what kind of education you have access to. And if your GPA is not good enough, there's sort of a sideway called the second tier is something you can apply to. But for in most cases, it means you do not get to study what you want. Take something yeah. else. <laughs> and that's what the Danes tell their citizens very straightforwardly. Hey, you know what? We need a lot of uh, engineers. We're going to set up so many engineering spots and you can apply to that. We don't need a lot of like um, ancient Greek majors. So there's like four spots. So if you have a GPA that secure one of those four spots, good, good for you. But we will direct society to a large degree towards what we want and what we need. The same happens in healthcare. Yeah. Healthcare is not um, just state-funded. It is state-run. The hospitals are run by government employees. They cost control. That's how you can give it away. Give it away right. for free. They cost control out the wazoo. 
There are all these restrictions on what kind of treatments you're going to have access to, how quickly you can have access to, and so on. Now, if you're, this is, we started this discussion saying I was so grateful growing up working class in Denmark. These things work very, very well when you're working class. I could do well in school. I didn't actually do that well. Thankfully, not that many Danes wanted to be business and computer science joint degree majors. So it was relatively easy to get into that line of study. I could get my healthcare situations. I had a bad ear when I was a kid. I got that fixed, two surgeries, never had to pay a dime for it. All these things were, were possible, right? That's great. That's what American liberals look at and go like, see, see, that's what we need. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then also just realize that when your fucking mom needs a new hip, she might have to wait for three months and it hurts like hell and maybe it takes even longer than that. There are all these trade-offs. And unless you're reasonable about it, actually, let me set the last big trade-off, is fucking taxes. American liberals have this twisted idea in their head that if we just tax billionaires more, like they'll pay for whatever we want. We can get free education. We can get free healthcare. Just tax those fucking billionaires more. What are you talking about? There aren't that many billionaires in the grand scheme of things. They don't have that much money and you will run out of it rather quickly. That's not how the Danes do it. There aren't a ton of Danish billionaires that they just tax to the moon. Everyone pays. You pay 50% at the marginal rate by the time you make $85,000 a year. You pay 32% like from the get-go. Are you willing to pay that? You just want all the shit for free, don't you? That's also (laughs) a kind of crap I can't take. There's one more thing, which is just on this point, which is uh, the homogeneity, right? The, everyone yes. buys into this culture, uh, maybe because of racial background, social upbringing. And I think there's a discordance between wanting diversity in all the different things and everyone buys into this system, right? And I think that's kind of the, one of the other things that you know that comes up in the discussion around your post. Not only is there a tension in my analysis, and maybe that's too pessimistic, there's an incompatibility. Mm. You cannot have, or I have not seen, we have not seen, a truly pluralistic, multicultural society that has also embraced a full-functioning, socially democratic welfare state. Mm -hmm. I think there's something fundamental in there, and you can dive into a bunch of research around how willing humans are to share their resources with people who don't look like them who come from a different cultural background than them. Now, it's not completely clear-cut, and there are a ton of nuances in this, and you can really get yourself into hot water if you try to summarize it too succinctly. So I won't do that too much. Um, But just to say that, yes, I got that appreciation firsthand. My wife comes from um, sort of uh, northern or Nordic ancestry. Like literally two hops back, there's Norwegians and Swedes in her family line, right? She lopes. Danish. But she's not Danish. She's American. She does not speak Danish fluently, even though she actually learned Danish and could speak it passively, right? That little difference, like someone who actually could pass, if if she didn't say anything, could totally pass for a quote-unquote native, um, Danish society still heavily, I don't know, I want to say rejected, but was incredibly skeptical of. Like mm, as right. the Danes have this switchover where they're very kind to tourists, so a lot of tourists come in like, "Oh, the Danes are so nice!" Like they we really reload a time there with everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. But tell them that you're staying and you get about five minutes of uh, of rest before they're like, "Hey, why don't you speak perfect Danish yet?" 
why aren't you working the same kind of jobs that other Danes are? Why aren't you all your kids in Danish school like, hey, get with the fucking program, right? <laughs> they need the homogeneity, or they believe they need it. I actually think that they're right um, for this stuff to work. And this is why Denmark, and there's a long discussion there where you can contrast it with its closest parallel, which is Sweden. Sweden take a very different path when it came to immigration, for example. And they now have very different outcomes. The yeah. Danes already in the 90s went like, do you know what? No, we're going to have a much different stance on it. They have all sorts of restrictions on immigration. They're incredibly strict on it, which is also one of those things, again, it just blows my mind. Denmark keeps being... American liberals, one of the American liberals' favorite countries to point to whenever it's something they want. Oh, free healthcare, free education. Yeah, have you seen their right, fucking right. borders? Try, try walking up to the border in Denmark saying like, hey, I'd like to get in. Can I just walk in? I mean, I'm not going to say you get shot, but you will get arrested and you will get deployed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, okay. Now, I think we're almost out of time. Last question, right? And we like to ask a lot of people, right? Uh, we get a lot of things that we, I think, which kind of broken tech. But I think one of the things I love about what you're doing is it makes you optimistic about very, very different kind of tech. We didn't even touch on this today, but, you know, the fact that you're building single box architecture, right? Like things that can run anywhere. And you folks are obviously, uh, by the time this episode comes out, maybe it'll launch once, but, you know, kind of the process of that. Uh, hey, Calendar, if Apple's not blocking it, it's the App Store. I'm curious, like, just maybe on a parting optimistic note, what are things that make you optimistic about technology, which make you want to keep working in this space for many, many years to come? The compression of complexity. So I love taking something that is difficult, um, expensive, exotic, and then making it a commodity, making it really easy to use for someone who do not have the background I have in technology, um, who might just have gotten started. This is my life's work with Ruby on Rails. Make it so easy to build web applications that almost anyone, I'm not going to say can do it, but can get started. Whether you complete the journey is entirely up to you. But I want to lower the walls for getting started because that is, that's the biggest hurdle. If you can't even get Hello World up on the screen, you're not going to keep going. And I say that as someone who had to try to learn how to program like three times before I got it. And every single time I failed, it was because of those high walls. So I have such an affinity for lowering those walls so that we can have equality of opportunity. If you're willing to put in the work, you don't need a lot of prerequisites. You can show up with just a willingness to learn and you can do it. And I want to do the same thing with all web technologies. To me, the web is the eighth wonder of the world. It is the greatest commerce platform we've ever known. It's the greatest software platform we've ever known. We must guard it with our fucking lives because there are corporations out there who would love nothing more than to lower a toll booth on top of the web, who would love nothing more to return the web to the walled garden of AOL. Apple is trying very well. They're inching ever closer to having demands on the entire web. It is dystopian and we must fight it. So I sign up in the service of the web, in the service of the internet, in the service of having a free platform for creation and commerce where people don't have to ask permission. They can do and act however they want and customers Final users will make the determination whether that's going to be successful or not. This is one of the reasons I know we didn't get into this, but one of the reasons I changed my stance on crypto or at least on Bitcoin. I used to be pretty negative, let's say, on the whole okay. space, and I still have a lot of negativity around the actual shenanigans going on there. But the fundamental idea of the freedom to transact, yeah, I'm 100% behind that. 
This idea that if Visa or MasterCard don't like what you're doing, they can shut you off from being able to transact. This idea that the Canadian government at any time, they don't like your style of protest, can shut down your bank account. It's like, it's not just dystopian, it's totalitarian nightmarism. And it's not like sort of even, I have to imagine five steps from here, it's going to be bad. That is bad. Like actually that Canadian trucker protest was the thing that made me reevaluate crypto and, and write about that. And that is the underpinning of our entire conversation. I mean, it sounds so trite, but I will absolutely wave an American flag and say, at least we're free or whatever it goes. Right. Um, the, the love of freedom, the love of individual enterprise and entrepreneurship. And so I'm, I'm 100% behind that. That doesn't mean there aren't all the things we can do and improve things, blah, blah, blah. But at its core, that's what we got to be for. I want to work in the service of that. More people have access to more avenues of commerce so they can make more things better, quicker, faster for all of us. This is how we're going to get prosperity. This is how we're going to lift ourselves out of all the things. Um, You've got to be optimistic about that. And I do actually personally regret that my lens for too long had a shade of pessimism about it. Um, and some of that came out of my animosity towards the VC funding model, which I have softened on. Not that everyone needs to do VCs. I'm not softened on that one bit or that we should have other alternatives. But this idea that like at least someone is putting money forward to build shit. I want to be next to builders. I want to be next to people who make stuff. Much yeah. more so than I want to be next to people who just sit around and shit on things. You earn a proportionate amount of shit on things rights to how much you're building. If you're not building at all, shut the fuck up. Yeah. yeah. If you're building, well, I, I, okay, you earn two tickets <laughs> to to be critical. Um, but you cannot just sit on the sidelines and shit on things. I'm I'm over that as a whole paradigm concept. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, DHS, you know, we're recording this a couple of days after, you know, Argentine President Millet's speech at Davos. And I think it's still strike me, you know, his comment on freedom, what you're saying, which is let's keep internet free, freedom, builders and freedom. I think I'd rather go a better note to end on. Let's go build, let's keep the web and everything, you know, and let's prioritize freedom. This was brilliant. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for coming on our show. This is awesome. It was really fun. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you.